This is SG2 Perspectives, a conversation with SG2 experts and industry thought leaders about the biggest trends in healthcare and what we expect that's going to mean for the future of healthcare delivery. I don't think it's any secret that we're not great at being preventative in our healthcare as a country, but this is one way we can be preventative. We can encourage folks to utilize their primary care physician. We can engage them. We can start to tackle some of those higher acuity conditions in the outpatient lower acuity space. Welcome to SG2 Perspectives. I'm your host, Tori Ritchie. Primary care is always a popular strategic topic for our members. And for a portion of 2022, it was the most searched topic on our website. This ecosystem is certainly in flux and we could have discussions about many of the ways primary care is changing. From a health system perspective, one of the biggest ways it is changing is that strategic approaches are more tailored and more precise than ever. Few health systems pursue broad blanket strategies to remake primary care, rather they're piloting and experimenting with smaller pockets of innovation. And one of those most common segments for experimentation is tailoring primary care to that 65 up population. I have with me two of our experts in this space, Stephanie Snyder and Trevor Duren. They wrote a briefing that's all about senior primary care. It's coming out in a couple of weeks. We want to dive into that portion of the primary care topic. Trevor, why is senior population one of the first places health systems are reshaping primary care? Thanks, Tori. Health systems told us loud and clear that they know primary care really isn't working great today. It's not a great fit for providers. It's not really delivering on a lot of consumer needs across the spectrum from convenience to well-managing complex care. They know it's broken and then it needs a big fix. But at the same time, it's not going to be one big, broad, sweeping change across the primary care landscape. They're looking for ways to focus and places to zero in and segment this population. Focusing on seniors aligns really well with so many other big health system initiatives right now. Looking for near-term growth opportunities like decanting inpatient and aligning with and trying to get better prepared for Medicare Advantage. On near-term growth, in some ways, it's kind of a duh statement, but guess what? Inpatient surgical growth is really going to be driven by the 65-plus population. If you look at those under 65, our surgery forecast is actually flat for the next five years, but double-digit growth for the 65-plus population. And it's not just CV and ortho. There's pockets across GI, cancer, and other places. Looking at near-term growth, how could you start anywhere but looking at this population and trying to build a better funnel for those patients starting from primary care, building tighter connections with specialists? I hate to say it, but like that's sort of the bread and butter of what primary care is mostly thought of as the key thing it's going to do from a health system perspective. Increasingly, health systems are saying, but we need to decant inpatient, so like all growth isn't going to be created equal. The 65-plus population represents the low-hanging fruit in decanting inpatient opportunities. Most health systems are anchored to their hospital footprint. They've mostly thought so far uh, in terms of opportunity to can inpatient within the four walls of the hospital around focusing on readmissions, around building a discharge lounge, around OR efficiency. That's only going to get us so far. Tori, I don't have to tell you, you run and build the forecast. We have been forecasting that acuity is going to rise for a long time. COVID was an accelerant to that. We're already at the beginning of seeing a really tough flu season, potential COVID surge season, big RSV season. Hospitals are realizing like this is going to be a bigger initiative than just focus on the four walls of the hospital. And primary care is a great place to start, not only for diseases that are seen primarily in primary care, like diabetes, 
diabetes, dementia, COPD, CHF that represent a huge portion of inpatient admissions and that are really high volume. Just those four care families, 15% of inpatient admissions for the 65 plus population. Even if you say we're just going to focus here because we're touching these patients so much in primary care, imagine that impact. There's even other places where simply increasing access, education make a huge impact, like pneumonia, so many patients showing up for dehydration, UTIs. Those are things that in many cases could hopefully be cared for outside of the inpatient setting. Health systems are starting to think about primary care as a place to do that. And as so many systems think about Medicare Advantage as an inevitable growth in their market where they're not capturing a lot of that value today. How do we get better prepared to try and be a good partner in MA? Even if we don't really want to be a great partner to payers, we kind of have to because there's such a big financial incentive to try and capture some of the value there. Simply focusing on the STARS metrics that are so important to payers, things like preventative wellness visits, cancer screenings, flu shots, and then the bread and butter around coding and documentation, which most health systems admit they know is an improvement opportunity, but it's not very sexy and exciting and it's hard to get clinicians excited about it, especially right now when we're not looking for more administrative tasks to push to our frontline staff and providers. Building those building blocks would allow you to create some incentives for Medicare Advantage. It'll be better alignment opportunities for providers down the road. That obviously really syncs well with any senior-focused primary care initiative. Because those three big things are already health system goals and priorities, they all have a big role from primary care. The senior population has been a logical starting place as systems start to think about how to reimagine their primary care footprint. I want to go back to something that you said about the importance of organizations needing to decant volume out of their inpatient care setting. The 65 up population, we are seeing baby boomers age into that Medicare population at this point. We now have a bolus of individuals that are falling into that 65 and up cohort. As we think about now, as the general adult population is continuing to age, as we are going to have increased demand, we are also not any healthier of a population today than we were even a couple of years ago. Ago, getting back about coming out of the pandemic and really were worse for wear. I think of it as well as a strategy for is this an opportunity to now get ahead of individuals' conditions, to better manage their conditions, to prevent them from ever experiencing an acute exacerbation, which then not only helps decant volume you might be seeing flow into your inpatient care setting, but helps open up that bed capacity for perhaps a patient population that is strategically more important for you to target with that inpatient care. Now more than ever, don't you think a CFO would love to hear, I have a strategy to keep 5% of our Medicare patients out of our inpatient setting. We can say that that might have gotten good reception five years ago, but I think that message has been hard for really any type of hospital to swallow, but not today, and especially not when they look at forecasts going forward. And especially when you look at financial margins of organizations today, think about the cost savings that's associated with being able to have a 5% reduction in Medicare medical admissions within your hospital setting. That translates to huge dollars for hospitals, and it's something that certainly organizations across the country are struggling with to a great extent. One of the things, Trevor, we talk about is the forecast as we look across the 65 plus population. And we know that our forecast shows a 10% increase in surgery growth for this older adult population at the five-year mark, much less the 10-year mark, which is 17%. 
to your point, if we're thinking about how our hospitals today are already overflowing, we have the constraints by not having enough workforce based on how we're delivering care today. It begs the question, how are we going to deliver it differently tomorrow? I don't think it's any secret that we're not great at being preventative in our healthcare as a country, but this is one way we can be preventative. We can encourage folks to utilize their primary care physician. We can engage them. We can start to tackle some of those higher acuity conditions in the outpatient lower acuity space. Those are the things that may not make an impact today, but they will make an impact in a couple of years. And you're really going to need that space. We're not getting any healthier. Only those who are the most sickest patients are going to win a bed space in five or 10 years. So if we can start to think about that today, it's going to help us in the next couple of years. Stephanie, to that end, this isn't a trend that we have to wait necessarily 10 years to see the impact play out. I feel like organizations are really starting to experiment in this place now. They're trying on new care models and getting their feet wet. I'm curious, do you have any examples of what organizations across the country might be doing in the senior care space? We heard some common themes when we interviewed organizations and we continue to talk to them in our daily work, but some of them are positive trends and some are not so positive. Organizations are really taking a look at their geographic expansion. They're wondering, do they need more primary care facilities? Do they need better facilities? Do they need better locations? They're looking at whether or not primary care makes sense to grow and how that impacts their downstream referrals as well as their downstream inpatient capacity. That's one of the most common themes that we heard. One of the hottest questions that we get is workforce. I've heard from an organization here in Virginia, they lost 13 of their primary care providers over the course of a couple of weeks. I don't know how many they started with, but I'll tell you, no matter how many, 13's a lot. We talked to them about the idea of where they're going and why. To some degree, it has to do with disruptors like Chen Med and Oak Street, who promise a reduced panel size and more patient time. And that's really appealing to a lot of physicians. We talked to an organization who is in the southern U.S., and they're trying to get ahead of their workforce constraints by creating a program for fellows and residents and giving them a stipend now if they sign on to become faculty after their training, so thereby perpetuating and growing their workforce. This encourages commitment of a couple of years. You know, the gentleman that we interviewed said, we probably should have been doing this forever. One of the biggest trends is getting ahead of the workforce problems that they're seeing. And P.S., it's not a workforce shortage anymore. We've had what we're calling shortages for years and years and years. It's not a shortage. It's a mismatch of how we're delivering care. We have X number of providers, and that's just what it is. It's not a shortage. We need to deliver care differently because we can't grow more providers. If that model is attractive, is that something that we're actively encouraging health systems to pursue? Are we encouraging providers to take on more of that disruptor model instead of the traditional care patterns that they previously would deploy? Maybe, but we get a lot of pushback when we say that because it's a really big pivot from what an employed medical group is used to delivering when they're employed by a health system today. But at the same time, there are some ways that health systems can start to emulate what those brands do and use it as a building block, maybe think that it's a long-term goal, knowing that there's going to be a bunch of incremental steps along the way, and there's not just one route to get there. The thing that health systems have going for them today is most of those brands, Village MD, Privio, Oak Street, Chen Med, 
aren't really consumer facing brands, but your health system is and you have patients, customers, consumers who know, love and trust your brand. You're not beating them to the market, but you're beating them to talk about it on consumers terms where something that's branded with your brand, but very clearly focused on the senior population can to a consumer look very similar to some of these new disruptive models. The disruptors have mostly appealed so far to providers and they've done a good job of that and to funders, but they're not yet really changing the pitch direct to consumers. Health systems can still build something that looks similar, even if it's not the super small four to 500 panel size and the same dedicated care team and the same really integrated and pretty innovative payment models. The other piece is those clinics, like an Oak Street clinic is totally dedicated to serving duels. And creating a dedicated clinic can be a goal for health systems, but it doesn't have to be to provide senior focused primary care. Again, we know that's a tough pivot. It's hard to say to physicians, okay, you're going to chop off half your panel that's under 65. We're going to fill with a bunch of new patients. This is how much different your day is going to look if you're not also building a complementary team around that. And I know we'll talk a little more about the care teams later. It doesn't have to be a dedicated clinic to be senior-focused primary care. Of course, there are some benefits to having a dedicated clinic, putting in ancillaries on-site having specialists in the same building, particularly cardiology. That's one thing that we can learn and maybe copy from some of the disruptors. The other thing we've heard is most health systems, and maybe many of you listening, have sat down and talked to disruptors about a potential partnership. And the disruptors are happy to come to the table, tell you about their model, tell you all the great things they do. They don't have a big ask from health systems, except do you want to essentially give us your physicians? And now all of a sudden we grow our footprint in this market. That's obviously a simplified view of the world because there's employed providers aligned, there's a CIN, there's affiliate groups. But essentially, the disruptors want to grow their provider base, and they see health systems as an efficient way and a fast way to do that. I think of them more as competitors today than partners. There are spaces and ways to partner if health systems are willing to say, these disruptors can do value-based care better than we can today. And we're going to let you do that and transform our primary care into a truly value-based care provider. But you have to be realistic that they're still going to build the same contracts that they build when you're not involved. And those often include big changes to downstream volumes and referral patterns. Being realistic about what that partnership is going to look like going in is important, but some are still doing it. So from the health system perspective, there's definitely still a value proposition. And Trevor, one of the things that we heard loud and clear when we interviewed organizations on this specific topic was if they were to bring this model to the table with the smaller panel sizes, most of their physicians don't want to just drop half of their patients. They feel really committed to their patients, which is great. If that's something that you're considering doing in your organization, I would encourage you to consider how it will affect your physicians. Are they going to like it or are they going to leave? You may want to have those internal conversations before you make any sudden moves. Something that we haven't addressed just yet, and Trevor, you alluded to it, is really the integration of some of those specialty services and primary care offerings. CV is certainly one area of integration that we've seen some success with. Behavioral health is another one. And Stephanie, in addition to co-leading primary care research, your full-time job is really leading up the behavioral health research for our company. You and I have had conversations about seeing increased success with integrating behavioral health and primary care services, but I'm curious, specific to senior primary care, are we seeing integration here? What are organizations doing? Have they been successful? 
The quick answer is not really. We're not really seeing a lot of specific integration related to the older adult population. That being said, in preparation for all of this work, I did do some background research and whatnot and found a really interesting article that was just released in Health Affairs. These patients were seeing mental health nurse practitioners or psychiatrists. And the reason I bring this up is because oftentimes behavioral health is not being integrated fully into the primary care office with the reference of we don't have the staff, right? We don't have a psychiatrist. A lot of organizations will just leave it on the table. But recognizing that patients are not getting healthier, they're getting sicker, while at the same time, they're also becoming more depressed and more anxious. And those comorbidities are costing healthcare organizations in CMI, length of stay, readmission. By not getting ahead of it, you are really paying for behavioral health care on the back end instead of on the proactive end. Circling back to the study, these patients who were seeing the mental health nurse practitioners had the same results as psychiatrists in terms of the types of patients, the services, the prescriptions. But what was different was the number of nurse practitioners seeing Medicare recipients increased by 162%. That's telling me that for a long time, you haven't needed a psychiatrist necessarily. It's okay to employ a mental health nurse practitioner. They do just as good of work delivering the services that are really needed. What's more in this study that I found very interesting was this rate of patients who saw nurse practitioners increased even more in a rural setting. More than 50% of the mental health visits in a rural setting were by mental health nurse practitioners, leading us to conclude that not all patients need to see a psychiatrist. Sometimes they need someone to talk to or medication, but those kinds of services can really help us get ahead of the problem that are exacerbating the downstream care. If patients end up in the hospital with a chronic kidney disease, they are going to cost the health system in an AMC model about $1,600 more than if they didn't have a comorbid behavioral health condition. That's per patient, per episode. They're also costing more in readmission, length of stay, and so on and so forth. If you scale it out across stroke, heart disease, diabetes, all of those major diseases, this is costing a lot of money. It's costing the patient quality of life days. It's costing the healthcare organization a lot of dollars. That's a long-winded way of saying we really should be getting ahead of behavioral health, whether it's claiming that we don't have the staff. It's more about rethinking what kind of staff we do have available. And if we're claiming we don't have the dollars, you're actually paying the dollars. You're just paying them on the back end instead of the front end. Stephanie, that's such an important discussion. And I think that it's striking the right balance of making sure that you're increasing access while also then meeting financial targets downstream. Behavioral health integration aside, are there other care team models or improvement initiatives that are important to consider as organizations do try to wrap their head around what the best go-to-market approach is for their senior primary care? If we're thinking past behavioral health, organizations are becoming more and more creative. We know that there's a shortage of physicians uniformly, but we're doing a little bit better in terms of our nursing staff. So augmenting physician practices with advanced practice providers is really one of the ways that we're seeing organizations get around that. Back to that organization that I talked to in Virginia who lost 13 physicians, that's one of the ways that they were able to cover themselves to use the other providers that were in the office and circumvent the loss of the physician. 
patients are not getting any healthier, they're getting sicker. As we talk to our medical leadership here at SG2, one of the things we hear is, yes, but it comes down to the point sometimes where the cases are so acute, even in primary care, and certainly with the senior population, that it really does become necessary to have that MD perspective or at least have somebody to bounce something off of. It's kind of twofold. While we don't always have the MD, maybe we need to think about how to leverage them in more of a consultative practice while the direct patient care is being done more by the advanced practice provider staff, who then, of course, can consult back for those high-level cases that are a little bit trickier and more medically complex, more medications, and a lot going on in the patient chart. I think that's smart. In approaching a care team from that manner, having the MD serve more as that consultation as opposed to the active caregiver for the vast majority of the patients on that panel. And then again, it allows everybody to start to have the capacity to work at the top of their license, which is something that's so important for organizations to continue to strive to hit. Honestly, Tori, that's how behavioral health has worked for quite a while because we haven't had the number of psychiatrists that we would like to have. That's the model that has grown and grown over the years. If we start to leverage that in primary care, it could have the same effect. It's the idea of spreading the wealth of what you have, knowing that you can't just grow more. I like that a lot. That helps connect the dots for organizations. If that's already a protocol that's been tested and tried and true for another specialty, why can't you replicate for a different area of your organization? Trevor, we kicked off the conversation mentioning Medicare Advantage. Let's circle back here. MA is a big part of the impetus for movement in this space. What are your thoughts on how that payer landscape fits in here? Yeah, MA has got to be a piece of the puzzle here, but it's not the whole story. In our insurance coverage forecast next year, we think MA is going to become 50% of all those eligible are going to be enrolled in MA. It's past the tipping point in any market. We're hearing from most of the systems I talk to talk about, yeah, MA is a big deal for us. MA is going to be really important going forward. But the way that contracting strategy, the medical group, and maybe Pop Health look at that is pretty different. This could be an opportunity to really stitch those pieces together in a more cohesive way. Payers don't need health systems to say, we have a dedicated 65 plus primary care offering for them to be interested in partnering or interested in sharing savings or risk. But all the outcomes from a dedicated primary care program are the things that payers will be really interested in. If you can show you're decreasing inpatient utilization, if you can show you're decreasing ED visits, you're increasing preventative wellness visits, increasing flu shots, increasing screenings. Those are all the places MA payers are going to be paying attention to. It's hard to make the case that that's not a good thing for patients as well as you're trying to get providers on board. MA, it's like the current that's going to help the canoe along here, but you can still paddle the canoe without it. It's an important piece, but it's not the whole story. Anything else that you all want to mention? This briefing and our research this summer really focused on the why health systems would pursue a primary care strategy and less on the how. Inevitably, we heard about some of the care team models. We heard about some of the challenges, some of the first steps health systems are thinking about and some of the low-hanging fruit. But this was really a big push on why we think this makes a lot of sense today. Trevor, I really like that laying a strong foundation for the why helps us then work through with our individual members that targeted how. Every organization's needs are going to be different. There's not going to be a one-size-fits-all solution, but certainly this helps push us in the direction for starting to solve this equation. Stephanie, Trevor, it was fantastic. Trevor, always fun to have you on the other side of the microphone with the podcast. 
it's harder on this side. This was a fun conversation. Can't wait for this briefing to be released and hope to see you both on the podcast soon. Thanks, Tori. Thanks so much for listening to SG2 Perspectives. As always, I really value your feedback, input, comments, or ideas for episodes, and you can reach us at sg2perspectives at sg2.com. Additionally, I recommend that you check out some of the other Visient podcasts, which cover a range of clinical and operational areas. Those can all be found at visientinc.com backslash podcasts. Mm-hmm.